0: Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. It is so good to be in this church. I don't know about you, but I just, uh, I missed this place last week, and uh, I'm so glad to be a part of the the family of God at, at Grace Baptist Church. Revelation chapter 7. I announced this morning the title of the message, Survivors of the Tribulation, if you would be Uh, lenient uh, to me I'd like to change that uh, title to Tribulation Saints when you say survivors you think of people that uh, live (laughs) eternal life is different than physical life and uh, so let's just uh, entitle this Tribulation Saints in Revelation chapter 6 we witnessed the opening of the first six seals of the scroll that only Jesus had the authority to open you remember those seals were probably on the end of the scroll sealed in wax, and so as each uh, section of that scroll is opened, a new seal is broken, and so we are between the sixth and the seventh seal. And there, at chapter 6, ended in a question, in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The seventh seal will be opened in chapter 8, between those two chapters, we read about two groups of people who will who will endure the outpouring of God's wrath during the tribulation. The believers of the church age have already been caught away in the rapture, and they're gathered around the throne of God. We saw that view in, or that scene in chapter four. So here in chapter seven, we'll discover the answer to the question, who shall be able to stand? There are two groups of people who will be saved during the seven year tribulation period. Uh, we'll just give an overview at the beginning, and then we'll, we'll go through the outline. First of all, there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And then second, a great multitude of Gentiles, which no one could number. So as we go through this chapter, we'll see the differences between these two groups. First of all, those from Israel in verses 1 through 8, they number 144,000. The great multitude of Gentiles in verses 9 through 17, the second half of the chapter, they're not able to be numbered. The the Israelites are the Jews who are sealed on earth. The Gentiles will be standing before God in heaven. The Jews will be witnesses to others. They'll be missionaries. The Gentiles will be martyred. So during the tribulation, God will preserve those Jews who turn to him for salvation. Uh, he He has preserved people throughout history. There has always been a remnant. He sent the flood in the early chapters of the scripture to destroy the earth. And he preserved eight souls, Noah and his family. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot and his daughters. When he destroyed Jericho, he preserved Rahab and her family. So the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes will come to Christ in faith. When we talk about salvation during the tribulation time, We don't want to say that there's a different kind of salvation. We often say in the Old Testament, were they saved the same way we are? There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Christ on Calvary. So no matter what age we're talking about in human history, whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Tribulation, the Millennium, we are only saved by Christ's work on Calvary. So these who are from these 12 tribes who come to faith They are saved by redeeming blood of Calvary. Now, then there will be witnesses, uh, they will be the witnesses to the rest of the world. There will be a great turning uh, to God by Gentiles. Many will be saved in those days. But those who do, those Gentiles who do, will be martyred. So the first three verses of Revelation 7 tell us about angelic intervention. If we're going to take a main point for one to three, we would call this angelic intervention. There are four angels who hold back the winds of God's judgment in verse one. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. I don't know if you were a child and you tried to hold back the wind with your hand. I remember traveling... uh, In those days, air conditioning was rolling down the window and you'd always put your hand out the window and the wind would go through your hand. It's impossible to hold back the wind, but these angels will be able to. God has given them that power to do that. And so these four angels, notice it says that they stand on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. By the way, this is not a proof text that the earth is is flat and has four corners. Henry Morris has done a, a lot of work in uh, creationism. He writes this, In terms of modern technology, it is essentially equivalent to what a mariner or a geologist would call the four quadrants of the compass or the four directions. This is evident also from the mention of the four winds, which in common usage would, of course, mean northwest, south, and east winds. When these winds are allowed to blow, they will bring destruction they will bring devastation to the earth Uh, the earth the sea and the trees now morris says that these trees are symbolic of of every living thing that is all vegetation on the earth dr custer disagrees he says that when a windstorm destroys the trees it causes a great casualty, and so uh, the evidence will be the same at the end of that destruction, that the, the trees will be all toppled over, the wind will, will destroy It'll be a, a huge destruction. Now the word for the angels holding back these winds indicates that the, the winds are attempting to break through, but the angels are keeping those winds from coming once those mentioned in chapter 7 are sealed and protected by God, then those winds, those forces, will be allowed to come and bring destruction in their wake. The fifth angel comes to protect God's servants. We find him in uh, verse 2. He comes to set God's seal on them. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. This fifth angel arises from the east. He has the seal of the living God. Now this, uh, this seal would be like a signet ring that a, a king would use to, to stamp a letter uh, so that it carried his authority. Uh, his, only the person to whom that letter was written could open that seal. And so that's what he's talking about. This this angel has the seal of the living God, and he cries with a loud voice. Notice the phrase, to whom it was given to hurt. That indicates that God was allowing this judgment to come. The punishment, the devastation that will come during the tribulation period is God's wrath that has been stored up. It is deserved wrath. It is just wrath. It is a thing that everyone will agree has, has to take place. Uh, so this is punishment or devastation that's deserved. He tells of the four angels, He tells this, this angel tells the other four angels to delay God's judgment until his servants are sealed. Verse 3, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Let's take a moment and and explain what this seal means. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 to 11, there's a similar passage that's given about people being sealed in their foreheads. In fact, it's a mark that was placed on those who cried over the abominations that were being committed in Jerusalem. They were grieved over that. And it says that they would be spared from destruction because they were given this seal in their foreheads, Ezekiel 9, 4 through 11. In the church age, as we look at the Bible talking about seals, uh, it's a mark of protection for God's children. It's the mark of every genuine believer. In 2 Timothy 2, 19, we read this. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal... The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So as believers, we have been sealed. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit, the redemption that we have. That's an interesting verse in 2 Timothy 2.19. I'd like to point out something. There are two phrases there. The Lord knoweth them that are his. That's God's sovereign work. The Lord knows those who are his. And then we also have in that same verse the responsibility of man. People often argue about Calvinism. But here in this one verse we have the sovereign work of God. The Lord knows them that are his. And then the responsibility of man. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So 2 Timothy 2.19 talks about that seal. And both in that, in that verse we have both the, the knowledge of, of God, his 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 pre-knowledge, and then human responsibility found together. Both are true. The seal is also, in the New Testament, spoken of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the sign of redemption. It's found in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit, of promise which is the earnest that word earnest is your down payment okay the price has been paid which is the earnest of our inheritance and until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory and so the seal is not only the mark that God places on the genuine believer but it's in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit now in the tribulation this seal will be a symbol of God's protection. We've already talked about that. The winds that are going to come, the winds of destruction, from the four corners of the earth, and those are God is holding back those winds through these angels until these Israelites are sealed. The Jewish believers receive the seal of God in their forehead. It's interesting that uh, the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, will be uh, taken by men in their right hand or in their foreheads. We'll talk about that more as we get to Revelation 13, but it's called the number of man, which is 600, score and six, or the number 666, and no one can buy or sell unless he has received that number. That's another seal in a forehead, but that's talking about the mark of the beast. Now, in verse 4, we come to the first group who are saved during the tribulation, They're Jewish believers who will be the witnesses for Christ. Jewish missionaries, verses 4 through 8. John heard who would be sealed. Verse 4, and I heard the number of them. Remember, John is getting all this information. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ as John is on the Isle of Patmos. And so he's hearing this, and he's writing this down. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed one hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Here is a specific number. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. 144,000 Israelites who are saved during the tribulation. They're also mentioned in Revelation chapter 14. Well, let's just turn, up, uh, turn over to Revelation 14 and read those first three verses of the chapter. And we'll see the same uh, Jewish missionaries mentioned here. Revelation chapter 14, Verses 1 through 3. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These who are sealed are going to be Jews. Some have tried to identify these as Gentiles, and if you read the commentaries on Revelation, you'll find several different views. Some people identify them as Gentiles, some people identify them as members of the church, but Notice that they're specifically mentioned as 12 tribes of Israel. The chapter goes on to mention the great number of all nations. Later on, the second half of the chapter, the Gentiles. And so those nations aren't included here. These are Israelites. The Old Testament also teaches about a remnant from Israel who will be redeemed in the last days. The remnant is a, is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give two references. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 22. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. And then in the, the minor prophet of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So there is a remnant, and that will be these these 144,000 in the end times. Notice the way they're numbered in verses five through eight. Specifically, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephtalim, our Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were t- sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were seal- sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. 12 tribes, add the thousands up, and you'll have 144,000. Now, there have been several explanations as to why these tribes are not listed in the birth order of the sons of Jacob. Since the Bible's inspired, we come to this passage and say God has a divine purpose in listing them in this order. It's a divine order, and it's intentionally recorded, as inspired scripture gives us. Judah is mentioned before the older brother, Reuben. The Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. Instead of Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, you remember that John mentions the names of Manasseh and Joseph. Dr. Custer says this could be emphasizing the double portion of the inheritance that Jacob promised to Joseph. Custer also writes a great deal of ink has been spilled as to why the tribe of Dan was omitted. And what he's saying is if you read all the commentaries, you'll see all these explanations of why Dan is not found here. There are a lot of good men who've written about this, and there doesn't seem to be any any certain specific agreement as to why Dan is not listed here. So I guess we're safe in taking any of those views that are out there. But I think as we look at this, the the, the 12 sons of Jacob, in fact, throughout scripture are mentioned, I believe 29 times in the Bible. Maybe the emphasis is not to be on why some of the tribes are, are omitted here for each particular list. But the fact that as they're listed, there are always 12. When you talk about the 12 apostles in the New Testament, some will say, well, was it Paul? Was it uh, uh, someone else? Was it Matthias? Uh, there's, there's you know, Could there be 13? No, there's 12, okay? It's just different lists here. So always 12, and uh, that's why we have 12 here. These 144,000, again, will be evangelists. They'll be giving out the gospel of the Messiah, Um, and they will be giving that during the tribulation. You think it's tough to give out a gospel tract now, can you imagine what it will be like in the tribulation? And remember, these are God's chosen people. They have been blinded, many of them, thank God for the Messianic Jews who have come to faith in Christ and seen that He is the Messiah. But there are others who are still blind to the fact that Jesus is their Messiah. But they will open their eyes then. And they will be evangelists. They will be giving the gospel. First the two witnesses uh, will come. And then they will, these Jewish uh, believers, uh, the 12,000 of each tribe will believe and also take the gospel. MacArthur says, uh, notice that the, they are a large uh, I'm sorry, changed my, my, my pager. Uh, so the, they'll be evangelists. Now let's move on to the next group. In, in verses 9 and 10, John sees a great multitude, the second group of those who will be saved during the tribulation. And these will be those who are, are martyred for their faith. Verses 9 and 10. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Those who are killed in the tribulation because they refuse to worship the beasts are mentioned in this passage. There are a large number. Notice it's, They cannot be numbered. There will be myriads of people who will be saved during the great tribulation. Let me read what one author says about this. There's coming in the future a worldwide response to the gospel that will far exceed any other in history and maybe all others combined. Can you imagine? When you think about the 3,000 that were saved when Peter stood up at Pentecost and preached and you think about the great revivals in history this will be a greater revival than any that have ever been seen let me get back to the quote it will sweep the globe in just a few short years and produce a vast multitude of redeemed people from all the nations making it the greatest movement of God's saving power the world will ever see some people ask will there be a second chance some Bible students talk about the strong delusion that's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 and say that strong delusion is given to people who had the opportunity to be saved in the church age but rejected it. That's possible. Some think those who refused will repent and be redeemed, but it will cost them their lives. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 lays out the context of that strong delusion. I would encourage you to read that. Um, other passages tell us that God wants people to be redeemed. He wants men to respond in faith and be saved. We know that from 1 Timothy 2 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all all should come to redemption. We ought to think of that as we witness to people today. This is what God wants. He wants people to be saved. I know we're burdened about our lost loved ones, and we should be, but do you know that it's on the heart of God to redeem them as well? That should give us impetus to continue praying for our lost loved ones, and give us a a desire to open our mouths and be bold in our witness. And also to be faithful as we we live out our testimony of what Christ has done for us, that this is genuine salvation. Notice they'll stand before the throne in white robes and with palms in their hands. White robes are always in the scripture a symbol of righteousness. Palm branches are used in the Bible to show celebration and deliverance. They were used during the, the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They are also seen, these people, in the second half of the chapter, gathering at the throne of God. They are in the presence of the Lamb, another indication that they've already been martyred. They give praise to God and to the Lamb with loud voices. The Lord is pleased when we lift up our voices in praise to him. I love it. I love to hear the church sing loudly. (laughs) Don't be self-conscious about your voice. Lift it up in praise to God, as these martyred saints do in his presence. They appear again at the time of the resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Let me just skip over to that and read that one passage. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. These tribulation saints have already died and have been resurrected. They're in the presence of God at his throne. And notice also they're serving him. They'll rule with Christ in the millennium. There are two schools of thought on this. Some think that those who have died and rule in the millennium will have a spiritual oversight over geographical areas of the kingdom of God in the millennium, much like the angels do today. There are others who think that they will rule on the earth, seen and dwelling among men. I tend to think it's one of of spiritual oversight like the angels have now, but I could be wrong. Notice we get to verses 11 and 12 and we find these angels worshiping around the throne. And the angels stood about, round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. While the martyred saints give praise to God before the throne, they are joined with all the angels. They're joined with the 24 elders and the four living creatures. We met those four living creatures in chapter 4 and verse 8, where we said they were also angels. And this crowd that can't be numbered join everyone else around the throne in praising and in worshiping God. The specifics of their worship is given in verse 12. They ascribe to the Lord blessing, glory, Wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Worship is going to be something that is practiced in heaven. We will be worshiping God forever and ever. We sang that song, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And we will. And we won't get tired of it. Because he deserves all of our worship. All of our praise. We come to verses 13 through 17. And we find an elder who explains to John who these people are. And I'm glad he does because we're interested in that as we read it. Who are these who are in white robes? Where do they come from? One of the elders answered, and uh, answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said, sir, thou knowest. (laughs) And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The 24 elders have already been identified as the representative people of God. We have the apostles of the New Testament, 12. We have the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament or the sons of Jacob, 12. And so when we have the 24, it's all the people of God of all ages, the Old and the New Covenant. So this is one of those elders. And he comes to John and he asks, who are these? And John doesn't try to answer. He throws it back on the elder to do so. That's always a better choice than trying to guess and getting it wrong. <laughs> and the elders answer, these are they which came out of great tribulation." In the text, the original text will find the definite article before the word tribulation. We know that it's these are they which came out of the great tribulation. It's a specific identification of these seven years that are yet to come to pass. There's no other time in history where there's been this worldwide devastation, uh, this scope of, of destruction, or even this huge number of people who are coming to Christ in salvation. They're the ones who are now before the throne, this great multitude which no man can number. They've come out of the great tribulation. These are those who have been martyred for their faith during that seven year period. Now they join the souls under the altar. We read about those in Revelation chapter six, nine through 11. Let me just reiterate or repeat that passage. When he had had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Do you remember that scene? And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And this is what's taking place now. All of these tribulation martyred saints will be joining them together. Warren Wiersbe says Revelation 24 indicates a special resurrection for these tribulation martyrs and promises that they will reign during the kingdom age. He goes on to say, we have good reason to apply verses 14 through 17 to the blessed state of the saints of God now in glory or now with the Lord. What, 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 what is the description here? They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is speaking of the righteousness when the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sin. As we said earlier, faith in the work of Christ on Calvary is the only way a person can be saved no matter what age we're talking about of human history. These tribulation saints have been martyred and they're now serving before the throne. We see that in verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. The word for serving here is litruo. We get our word liturgy from that. It's the word that describes the, the work of the priest serving in this temple, this tabernacle. There's a temple in heaven right now. God showed it to Moses, so it was the pattern for Moses to build the, the tabernacle on earth. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2 the true tabern- tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And so I believe this is talking about the heavenly temple. There will be a temple on the earth during the millennium. In the eternal state, Revelation 21, 22 says, there will be no need for a temple. Revelation 21, 22 says, and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. But here they're serving in a temple. So I believe it's the heavenly temple. Uh, temple. They serve day and night. You say, well, there's no night in God's heaven, is there? No. I think this is an expression that, should, that means they serve continuously. The one who sits on the throne will dwell. He will reside. The, the verb is he will tabernacle among them. What a glorious day for these tribulation saints. Think about what they've been through. MacArthur writes... These believers will have witnessed unspeakable suffering and indescribable horrors as God's judgments were poured out on the world. They will have suffered terrible persecution at the hands of the Antichrist and his followers. But when they enter God's presence, they will come to a heavenly sanctuary, the most secure place. There they will receive shelter from the terrors of the fallen world that are to come as God continues to unleash his devastating and destructive judgments. The chapter ends with the promises that God will provide. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them into Unto living, wa- living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Remember, these are those who have come to Christ during the tribulation. No more hunger. They couldn't buy anything without the mark of the beast. No more thirst. Devastation on the earth. Waters that are destroyed. The sun that scorched men in the tribulation, we can read about that in Revelation 16 and verse 9, will not be needed in heaven. Revelation 21, 23 says, The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The Lamb will feed them. He'll lead them to fountains of waters. He'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is a a scene that is difficult to think of. The judgment of God and yet because of the sins of man that deserve this just punishment, the tribulation will be a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. But as you think of that, he is still a God of mercy. He doesn't set aside any of his attributes at any time. He is always the same. Even when he pours out the wrath that he's been storing up upon the sins of mankind for all these ages, his mercy will be available for those who turn to him. He's merciful today. If you're unsaved, you need to respond to that mercy. He'll save you by his grace. If you're a believer... Aren't you burdened to witness for him as these 144,000 will witness during the tribulation? Keep telling others of the mercy that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our fathers, we think of the devastation that this world rightfully deserves. We think of the grace and the mercy that we don't deserve. And I pray that you would help us Who have tasted of the salvation that you have given to us, so full, so rich, so free, that we would share it with others who need to hear the gospel, whom you want to hear the gospel and to be saved. Help us to be faithful in the way that we witness and in the way that we live in this time period. And I pray that you would help us perhaps even lead one of those Jews to Christ, so that they, too, will be a part of the rapture of the church. I pray that you'll give us a sense of urgency as we read about the end times, realizing that this could happen in our lifetime. I pray that you would help us to be burdened for the lost and serve you faithfully. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.